What a prayer for us in this series as we are seeking to follow Jesus through the gospel of Mark. Thank you, Sarah. Would you stand for the reading of scripture this morning? Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, as we come to scripture this morning, would you remind us as we, as I read this, as we hear this, that this is your God-breathed word for us. It is an invitation for us to follow Jesus. Lord, help us not to doze off. Help us not to go into any sort of mode that says we've heard this before. We believe that you are speaking fresh to us. Would you do so this morning, we ask, as we approach your word, your holy word. Amen. Amen. From Mark chapter 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit upon him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten other disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. If you're keeping track at home, this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death in the Gospel of Mark. Every single time it's in the presence of his disciples. This is the most descriptive of the three. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the disciples, as is so often the case in Mark, to the point where it's getting almost uncomfortable if you're reading along, they don't get it. They don't get it. 
They really cannot get their brains around the idea that Jesus would suffer, let alone that they would have to suffer with him. So they think that maybe Jesus is speaking in a metaphor. He has a tendency to do that, right? He must be saying something other than what he's saying. We talked about a couple weeks ago about how we in the Western world tend to run from suffering. Even tragically in the Western church, we avoid it at all costs to the point where we have a tough time following Jesus because we don't have the stomach for the suffering of Jesus and we don't feel like we should need to suffer because we bought into this lie that life with Jesus is some sort of inevitable march upward and to the right. But instead, we said suffering is good soil, a maturing agent in our lives, and we should embrace it, especially now when suffering is a worldwide event. It's at our doorstep. If this idea of suffering as good soil is new to you, please go back and listen to the teaching a couple weeks ago. It is in many ways a companion text to what I'm talking about today. But this morning, we're not going to focus primarily on Jesus' words about his death, nor the disciples' misunderstanding of those words. We've done that already. We focus instead this morning on the warped dreams and desires of the disciples and how Jesus addresses those. So two brothers, James and John, they pull Jesus aside. They want to ask him a question. Hey, when you come into your glory, can we sit on your right hand and left? That's where we'd like to be. As you might have guessed, the right and left hand are seats of great honor and status. In the first century world, the right hand indicated the place of greatest honor. That was for an heir, a son typically, or or a chief advisor of some sort. The left hand was the next best option to the right hand. These were the two seats of honor. Imagine, if you would, a, a, a dais of a grand sort of throne room. You can think about this in your sci fi movies that you watch, that kind of thing. The king sits atop the throne, and at his right and left are his closest companions those who he trusts the most, shares his glory with, shares life with. This is what James and John desire, a seat of honor, a share in the glory. Now, it's easy to see this as a major miss by John and James, and it absolutely is a major miss by them. But in one sense, I do want to say that this request is, in some sense, commendable, okay? They're wrong, but it's somewhat commendable. Uh, The request does reflect a belief in the Messiah, right? That Jesus is the Messiah, that he's going to be victorious in his messianic role, and he will prove to be so. So there is faith there. Their request has faith to it. But we need to say that their request is really pretty appalling, (laughs) right? Especially after what Jesus has just said about his death and suffering. Their request is a telltale sign that they have not been listening to Jesus, to anything that he's really been teaching. They don't get him, and they certainly weren't listening to his foretelling of his suffering and death, or else this would have been the most tactless thing to say right after that. Yet another example in the sermon series of the disciples just not getting it. And I've said it before. I bet I'll say it again in this sermon series. Thanks be to God that Jesus is gracious and patient and faithful because I would not blame him at all for going, I can't do anything with these guys. These guys don't get it. I got to go to a different town. I got to start over with another 12. I cannot handle these guys. I need people who are more receptive, more obedient, more considerate. That's where there's hope for us. That's where there's hope for me. Let me just start with me. Jesus does not give up on them. 
Instead, Jesus' response is to say, hey, if you want to share in my glory, you need to drink the cup that I'm going to drink, and you need to share in my baptism, which is a symbol of death and rising. The disciples are like, yeah, we could probably do that. And Jesus notes that eventually they will, but it's not his place to afford them that seat of honor. As you can imagine, the other, 12 disciple, uh, the other 10 disciples, they, they catch wind of what James and John have done, that they're seeking this honor and glory without them. They become angry, so Jesus has to pull the whole group together and give them a pretty simple teaching, a radical teaching, but a simple one. If you want to be great, if you want to have status in my eyes, then take the posture of a servant. Don't seek your own glory. Don't seek your own honor, because if you want to be first, You have to assume the posture of a slave. That's the word that's used. That's a radical teaching. Then Jesus does something really amazing. At the end of this teaching, he says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples would have immediately picked up on Jesus' quotation here. That quotation is from Isaiah 53, perhaps the most notable chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's about a Messiah who's going to come hundreds of years later and is going to be a suffering servant. Not a triumphant king in a throne room with thrones, but a suffering servant. The Messiah here, Jesus, is headed to Jerusalem not to set up a messianic banquet, not to take over a throne room, not to have servants waiting on his beck and call, No, he's headed to Jerusalem to be a suffering servant. He's going to ride in humbly on a donkey. That's going to happen in a few weeks. Donkey will be here, everybody, just so you know. He's going to sacrifice his life for the disciples. Indeed, for the whole world. As a ransom, a payment for many. He says, The way of the world that you see all around you is to acquire power and lord it over others as much as you can to leverage your power all the time. But my way is to humble myself and to serve others. Now certainly we can read this teaching of Jesus as chiefly a corrective of James and John, kind of putting them in their place and their warped priorities. But I hope it does something deeper for us. I hope we receive it as an invitation for us as well to ask the question, am I taking the posture of a servant? Because... If we are seeking to follow Jesus, you just sang it in that song. If if that's true in your heart, then we need to ask this question all the time, every day. Am I taking the posture of a servant? Now, when you think about uh, uh, the idea of being a servant, we can get pretty easily defeated, at least I can. Maybe the first kind of thing you think of is somebody like Mother Teresa, some paragon of of service, right? That, That dear Macedonian woman who gave her life to snatching near-dead people from the gutters of the city that she was called to, Calcutta, India, loving them back to health or giving them dignity in their death. Maybe you think of this this five-foot powerful woman and what she did in her life. She started the Missionaries of Charity organization in 1963. It had 13 members and now has 4,000. She cared for tens of thousands of people in the lowest class in India, even below the lowest caste, because she was called to serve in that way. Maybe you think of someone like her. 
Or maybe you think of like some of our missionary partners and mission partners, even here closer to home in the city of Chicago, like New Community Outreach. If you get an opportunity to volunteer, you're going to meet these people who give their lives to the neighborhood of Bronzeville, distributing food, combating gun violence, volunteering at after-school programs for like no money at all. They just serve and serve and serve. Maybe these are the kinds of images that come to your mind and you get overwhelmed and you're like, I can't, I, I can't do that. I haven't done any of that stuff. Maybe you start to feel bad about yourself. Maybe you wonder how you could ever match up to faithful servants like that who model servitude in their lives for the sake of Jesus. But notice that when Jesus speaks to his disciples about this, he says, if you, if you want to become great, you must become a servant. He doesn't tell them, go somewhere else to serve with your life. He doesn't say go to Calcutta. He doesn't say go to the south side of Chicago. He says, become a servant now, or as I paraphrased it, take on the posture of a servant. Take on the posture of a servant. I believe that every single person here is called to serve. And some have been given that call to serve vocationally, like Mother Teresa. To exhibit mercy to be a model for everybody else by a life of servitude in that way, exhibiting remarkable mercy and compassion. But I think most of us, most of the rest of us, are not supposed to look at her and, and, and feel bad about ourselves. We're supposed to take the posture of a servant right where we are. I was going through um, some of my old stuff in the basement, a little bit of spring cleaning, and I came across uh, something from my college graduation. Some of you will remember graduations in your life, or you've been to them before. Uh, big day, right? Katie and I graduated from Bethel College, wonderful place, had a great experience, and we actually graduated mid-year because we finished a little bit early. So it was a little bit of an understated uh, ceremony, graduation ceremony, but still a big moment for us. Uh, you get dressed up in a cap and a gown. Most of you never have to wear a, a gown again in your life. I've done a few times when I'm preaching, uh, but that's kind of different, right? Wearing a cap and a, a gown, and you go through this pomp and circumstance and and then your name is called and at least for for us I got to go up on stage and and shake the hand of the president of our college who knew me by name and then right behind the president was the department chair for my major who congratulated me who I had spent you know how many I don't know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours with and then you receive your diploma this piece of paper that's the culmination of four years and tens of thousands of dollars and, and countless hours of work, you made it, you did it. But at Bethel, that wasn't the end of the receiving line. In fact, right after the diploma was the provost of our school who gave us something in addition to our diplomas. Um, he gave us this. This is a towel. And it has a quote on it from Jesus, pretty simple quote. It says, follow me. The provost would tell each of the graduates that this is a reminder that their call is to go out into the world and the workforce and family life and not seek to be served but to serve others. Just as Jesus did, to get down on your knees as he did in the upper room with a basin and a towel and wash people's feet. That's what he did when he arrived in Jerusalem. The towel is a reminder to follow the model of Jesus, to take the posture of a servant in everything that we do. 
you might notice that the provost did not say, okay, now you need to go to a far-off mission field. Now you have to go to whatever the most disaffected uh, neighborhood is in the city that you find yourself in and give your life completely to that. Though, I have classmates who did that because God called them to do that. The vast majority of those graduates went into more traditional workplaces like business and finance and sales and being mothers and fathers and doctors and teachers and corporate jobs and small businesses, whatever. They all entered wherever they were entering with a towel. No matter where you are, take the posture of a servant. What a beautiful reminder. And I will say something. It must have made an impact because I have absolutely no idea where my diploma is. Can't find it. But I know where this is. I know where this is. Now, what does it mean to actually serve somebody? Well, in the biblical sense, we get two words. They're both in this text, actually, which are more or less synonymous, servant and slave. Both are indicative of a, of a lowly position. For us, this means that if we want to take the posture of a servant, we are intentionally inserting ourselves below somebody else. We are intentionally lowering ourselves in order that we might get under and lift them up. This is so counter to the world around us where we are conditioned to do whatever we can to have a leg up, to position ourselves in such a way that we can win, that we can ascend. But what Jesus is talking about is something that is radically other-centered, focused on meeting the needs of others rather than controlling people to meet our own needs. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. And, and I know there's a tendency, especially if you've grown up in the church and you've heard these texts before, to be like, okay, I know that one. Just listen to these words, okay? Listen to these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or leveraged, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross." You see what Paul is doing here? He's looking at the life of Jesus and he's saying, how can, I, how can I encapsulate the character of Jesus? He saw Jesus as a servant. The person who humbled himself. Even though he was God, he put himself below others in order to lift them up. That's what his life was about. And here's the coolest thing about this passage. Uh, most scholars believe that these verses, at least these, the last few verses there, they are an ancient hymn or a liturgy that was already in circulation in the church. So what they think Paul is doing is he's taking a, a well-known verse from a, from a prayer or a song, and he is applying this to having the mind of Christ. So it's sort of like us taking one of our favorite worship choruses and, and quoting it and saying, remember what you just sang? That's what he's doing. He's, he's saying this is the attitude of Jesus, and he affirms something really cool, which is the very earliest Christians, those people who were historically the closest to the actual incarnate Jesus Christ, what did they center their worship around? Jesus as a servant. The attitude of Jesus as a servant. That was like their greatest hit songs. We're like, let's talk about how Jesus emptied himself. 
And why shouldn't we, as the church today, center our worship around the same thing? It could only be good for us to do this. Because when we encounter Jesus, it confronts our me-first attitudes and desires. We all have a tendency toward putting ourselves above others, trying to get to the front of the line. But, but if we never have those tendencies checked, and, and man, Jesus will check those tendencies in you. If you never have those things checked, they can become habitual for us, and we can become me-first people. Instead, let the kindness of Jesus check those tendencies and humble you today. It's good for your soul. Also, if you want to experience nearness with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, and I don't know why you wouldn't want to experience that because it's the best thing ever, then take the posture of a servant. This is a way that we draw near to him. It's a way for us to tap into his very character. Now, how can we take such a posture? I'm not saying that these are scriptural things. These are just things I observe from my life and, uh, and, and what I know of the character of God. Just three simple things that, that may be helpful for you. First, enter every interaction from below. Enter every interaction with people from below. Imagine for a second, intentionally entering a conversation saying, I'm going to listen well and ask great questions and encourage this person like crazy, and I'm not going to expect them to do the same for me, and even if they don't do any of those things for me, I'm going to be satisfied because I put myself under them. I mean, that would change your relationships, wouldn't it? That would change the way that we just listen and go through lives. To go under and, and lift somebody up to have that desire. That could be a game changer. That could be a game changer. Second thing, if you see an opportunity to serve or help or humble yourself, just say yes before you can say no. Don't wait for someone else to clean up the mess or to help somebody who obviously needs help around you or to give a few dollars to the person on the street who needs help or to jump the dead battery on the side of the road or to ask somebody if they are okay. Because you see, if we stop and think about it too long, we will come up with any reason to not help somebody, to not serve somebody. Don't have time. I need to maintain these boundaries, blah, blah, blah. Instead, just say yes before your mind can say no and see what God does with that. Live in an open-handed sort of way. Third thing is deflect the glory. Deflect the glory. When you do have an opportunity to serve someone and someone seeks to give you praise and glory for something, knock yourself down a rung or two. Not to be self-abasing, but just to give God the glory. Because if we're in a servant posture, it's not easy for us to be in a position of glory, right? In the world's eyes, just in God's eyes. If we all adopted this kind of servant posture, can you imagine how it might change our lives? How it might change our church? I think so many of our problems in life come from this me-first attitude that seeps in, but a Christ-like servant posture is a full frontal attack on that me-first attitude that's so natural for all of us. Just a couple open-ended questions. Let your mind go wherever it needs to go here because I believe that the Spirit can speak through these. How would this change your marriage if you took a servant posture in everything you did? For students who are here, how would it change your schooling, your schoolwork, the way that you, you hold yourself up in the hallways of your schools? 
How about your friendships? How would a servant attitude change your friendships? How about your finances? What if you looked at what God has given you and said, I want to serve. I want to come under to lift others up. What about your family? Just a quick story. I did a, a wedding over a decade ago. A wonderful couple. Loved each other a lot. They were they really good communication, great families, good support structure, really responsible, like all the, kind of checked all the boxes. But there was one unique thing that I haven't had in any other couple that I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot. Um, this was the most competitive couple I have ever known in my entire life. I had a tough time relating to this. Uh, I married the least competitive person in the world, and I'm not a super competitive person. And so I was trying really, really hard to understand this couple. They could barely play board games together because they would just, like, it was too intense. Uh, they were workout warriors. They were like, let's run another marathon, and I'm going to beat you. Even things like they would finish a counseling session and be like, let's run to the car. They were just super competitive about everything. And I was trying to figure out, how, how, can, I, how can I help them with this? How can, I, how, can, how can I encourage them to do something different? And I used that Philippians 2 text in their wedding, and I said to them, God, and, and somehow in the way in which you've been nurtured, you are both these incredibly competitive people. I can't relate to that. But I don't want you to lose that. In fact, what I want you to do that is I wanted you to channel that into your marriage. What if you were as competitive about those things as you were about serving one another? What if you woke up every day and you're like, I am going to outserve this person. They're still happily married. They're doing great. The invitation is fairly simple this morning. Take seriously the call to take the posture of a servant. But two more things in this text. For those of you who have been keeping score at home, you might be like, hey, I thought the sermon series was called Amazed and Afraid, and we haven't talked about the Amazed and Afraid part of this passage yet. Well, it happened right at the beginning. You might have missed it. Let me read it again for you. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Kind of a weird passage, right? That's a little bit of a weird verse. What were they amazed and afraid of? That he was walking, that he was going to Jerusalem, that he was walking in front of them. This seems like a strange thing to be amazed and afraid about, right? Well, actually, it is kind of all those things. They were amazed, I think, because they recognized a change in Jesus. He wasn't walking alongside of them because that's what a rabbi does. That's what a teacher does. That's what someone who's in a teaching mode does. Say, hey, let me come alongside you. Instead, he's walking out in front of them. What does the person who's walking out in front do? That's a leader. That's someone who's leading somebody somewhere. And where is he leading them? He's leading them to Jerusalem. He's leading them to the cross. I think those who were afraid, that, that might seem a little strange. I think the people who are afraid are the ones that are putting it together. They're going, he's walking, he's leading now. We're going to Jerusalem, Isaiah 53, and they're putting it together and they're realizing that this is a Messiah who is turning the world upside down, making it so that the first are servants and the best are those who sacrifice everything. Second thing from this text, and I'll close with this. It's interesting that James and John asked to be at the right and left hand of Jesus. And I cannot escape the imagery here. It's been haunting me all week. They want to be, to be with Jesus in his glory. Remember the throne room. Either side of him. But Jesus' ultimate glory was not in a throne room. 
His ultimate glory was on the cross. The most humble place you could possibly be, doing the ultimate service to humanity by dying as a ransom for many, taking the lowliest position, even in death, to do what? To lift up creation. And in that glory, Jesus does have men at his right and at his left. But are they James and John? No, they're not. Because James and John, they ran. They couldn't drink the cup that Jesus drank. Instead, Jesus is flanked by common criminals who sacrificed their life to the Roman justice system. I'm sure that James and John must have pondered this quite a bit, right? They must have replayed those words on the road and been like, oh man, we missed it. Because we know for a fact that James and John did kill that me first mentality that was so evident in them on the road. Acts 12 tells us that James is martyred for his faith by Herod Antipas and that his martyrdom in Jerusalem Jerusalem creates this revival that spreads out into Judea and to the surrounding area because of the faith of James. John is the only one of the 11 remaining disciples who does not die a martyr's death by tradition, but trust me, he drank the cup. He was almost boiled to death over hot oil in Rome. He spent the end of his life exiled on the island of Patmos. They saw the sacrifice of Jesus They saw the position they should have taken at his right and left hand in glory. And they assumed that servant position in their life and decided that it was good enough for them too. May it be the same for each and every one of us, for God's glory. Let us not seek to be served, but instead to serve. What a perfect way for us to head to this table set for us this morning. I bring this towel with me as a reminder that this is the banquet that Jesus set before his disciples that night in the upper room. That he got down on his knees and he he washed their feet. And he said, this is the kind of servant posture that I want you to take for others. Do you know, this is one of the the least followed commandments of Jesus. I think it's probably the least followed commandment of Jesus in the entire Bible. It is a commandment. Wash one another's feet. Now, we could take our shoes off right now and do that. But if we're not going to do that, we better have that servant posture in our lives. We better have that in our lives where God has put it. Jesus shows his disciples in that upper room what it means to be a servant. And then he offers a humble meal, a meal that is rich in metaphor. But there's something else that comes. As you come today to communion, if you choose to come to this table, any who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, no perfect people, just to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come to this table today. But I want you to come And hear God's call on your life to say, come and be a servant. Come and take this posture. With anyone that you interact with, would you go underneath and lift them up? But there's two things going on. The call to service 
But this is also a foretaste of a great throne room that we look forward to in heaven. Jesus, in the fullness of his glory, and we get to participate in his glory in fullness. This is a, a table we come to where we are humbled, we are brought down, and we are lifted up in the hope of the great feast to come. So you're invited to come and partake in this meal.